Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. Today, welcome on local author and soon-to-be debut novelist, Maurice Carlos Ruffin. He'll release his first book, We Cast a Shadow, in early 2019. Published by One World, We Cast a Shadow is set in a near-future southern city plagued by fenced-in ghettos and police violence, and more and more residents are turning to an experimental medical procedure, demelanization, to free themselves from the confines of being born in a black body, if they can afford it. In the style of Paul Beatty's The Sellout and Jordan Peele's Get Out, this electrifying, hallucinatory novel is at once a keen satire of surviving racism in America and a profoundly moving family story. Hey, Maurice, how's it going today? David, life is good. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks so much for joining You're us. Very again. happy to be here. Yeah, when's the last time you and me did an interview? It's been like three or four years now. It has right? been a while. 2014, I think. I think so. And a, a lot of ha- has happened since then. A few uh, things. You have a book coming out. That's right. Uh, January 29th? Yes, We Cast the Shadows coming out from uh, One World Random House. Okay, are you excited? I couldn't be more excited. Awesome. I'm trying to tamp it down, but I am extremely excited. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And I know to get it out of the way, you do have an event uh, tonight. This is airing Thursday uh, at the Dogfish Reading Series. Yes, um, Dogfish, if you don't know, it's a great reading series. It's maybe the best in town. I'm going to be doing a, a, a double header with uh, Rita Bullwinkle of San Francisco, who has a book called Belly Up. So I'll be there. She'll be there. It'll be a, a full house. You can make it out. It's for uh, 7 p.m. And also that same day, I'll be at Delgado at uh, noon. Okay. It's a public event. Um, it'll be in one of the auditoriums. Look it up online. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, fantastic, Maurice. I'm glad to, glad to hear that. Um, we cast Shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how this novel started for you. I heard a segment of this maybe three years ago at a, a library reading you did, and I didn't mm-hmm. realize it was not just a short story, but the beginning chapter of your novel. Yes. Um, was this initially a short story that grew out of that, or was this always the plan? No, I think that this um, this is an example of a character who's been in the back of my head for a long time. Yeah. And I've had him probably since 2007. But I couldn't think of a good story for him. I kept trying, like sort of restarting the engine over and over again. And I think what happened is that I tried to write two other books that didn't really go anywhere. Like I wrote 40 pages, 70 pages of the other one. At some point, I think it's 2013 when, when Trayvon Martin becomes something that we are aware of in the culture, when, he, when he's basically murdered, I thought a lot about that. And I was reading also at that time ta Coates' Between the World and Me, and I read also... Um, Michelle Alexander's book, New Jim Crow. So the sort of confluence of those things, they really sort of skipped into my consciousness. And I started thinking about what does it mean to care for somebody, you know, a a child, a parent, a grandparent, a friend, and not be able to protect that person from the worst things that society can do. And maybe the idea being that the worst thing a society can do isn't, it it isn't like these sort of one-on-one incidents where somebody shoots somebody else. It's when the sort of structures of society themselves are perverse. Yeah. They hurt rather than help. And so I think that was in the back of my mind when I began revising this book um, about five years ago now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the question of what, you know, a parent will do to kind of help their, their child in, in situations like that and in the very, like, abstract way you end up at uh, demelanization. Yes. Um, yes. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing about it is that the earlier version of the book, actually, he, he the main problem for him in that book was trying to protect his parents from losing their house. Yeah. And I think all novelists have that sort of first or early draft of a novel that's sort of like cliche or cheesy. And as I started to bear down into it, I kept thinking, you know, what is most important to this man? Yeah. And I recognized that in the earlier version of the, of the book, he was just sort of lonely and, and sort of displaced, sort of drifting from spot to spot to spot. 
And I think I recognize that if I gave him an anchor, which was his wife and his child, yeah. and gave them an issue that they, that, they, that, they should, that they should sort out together as a family, that would make the book work. Yeah. And lo and behold, um, once his child was in danger, he came alive to me. Yeah. And even to the point where his voice changed. So that I had written that early scene that you heard of him in a mansion on St. Charles Avenue um, at this sort of hazing event for a promotion. And when I added his son to the mix with his problem, um, this character became much more sardonic, witty, you know, quick-witted, dangerous. And once that voice came alive, once, once it quickened, I had a book. Yeah. I knew it from that moment. I think that, that that's cool. Um, the voice, that, that that voice came out. Were you... Uh, basing it off of anything, was there anything that really inspired that voice, or did it just kind of pop out of you? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that inspired. I mean, well, first of all, I should give props to a, a, a fellow novelist of mine, his name, a friend of mine. His name is Matt Johnson. Okay. He lives in um, Portland, Oregon now. He teaches creative writing. And Matt was the guy who told me that, you know, don't be too fancy. Just, like, try to give the reader a voice that is honest and direct. So his voice in some way is my voice, but it's also sort of mediated by voices like Humbert Humbert from Lolita. Yeah. And um, the narrator from Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, for example. So I think of those two characters as being sort of like these these poles that that uh, sort of control how he thinks and talks in the book. Yeah. And that framework really helped me to make him sort of a hyper version of who I, how would, who I would be in this reality if I was yeah. him, you know. And the, the reality is a big portion of this book. It's set in a New Orleans in the quote-unquote near future yes. where uh, things are in a continuation how they are but but heightened and so. Um, when did you decide to kind of add that heightened element to the story? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's kind of knowing what you do well. Yeah. And a lot of my friends over the years have told me, they say, Maurice, you know, I read your writing and it seems like it's realistic or neorealistic. Like you're just telling me a story. Yeah. But there's always like these sort of weird moments in there where it's like, no, this is not exactly how things are in the real world. This is sort of better or bigger than the real world. Yeah. Um, you know, filmmakers like David Lynch are good at that, where there's, it seems normal, but there's something not quite as it should be. Yeah. And so in this book, it took something I learned from uh, Colson Whitehead in his book, Intuitionist. And other writers have done it many times also, where you have a, a setting that's very specific, but also it's not specific. So it is set in the future, 50 years, give or take, in the future. And although it has a lot of New Orleans cues, and the earlier draft was New Orleans, now it's an unnamed southern city. Yeah. So I think for me, I did that for a few reasons. I wanted the book to not be too anchored to New Orleans, which is, it's weird that New Orleans is very famous. Yeah. But it's also, it's inaccurately portrayed. All the so time. So people will see it, and they'll think they know New Orleans. And they'll come in and kind of go, well, it's not what I was expecting. But then they'll, 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 they'll you know, they'll read a New Orleans book, and they will go online and say, well, that, that's not where Cafe Dumont is, or that's not where the Superdome is. So I wanted to kind of get those sort of factual questions out of the way because they weren't as important to me. Yeah. But also I wanted to make a book that was telling an American story because this story could happen in any city in, in, in America. Yeah. I mean, that's the bottom line. And I think in doing that, that freedom allowed this character to have sort of free reign of the story. And yeah. It made it a lot stronger. That's interesting. Did you set any constraints for yourself as far as like mentions and things? I know Yuri Herrera has talked about like he'll bar himself from using certain words uh, in, in his his novel writing, which I always <laughs> think is so interesting. No, for me, it was the reverse. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a very big proponent of telling yourself things like just like just like a mantra or a motto for what you're trying to do. Yeah. And early in the process of writing this book, I told myself it's time to take the, the clamps off. Yeah. It's like a spaceship that's getting ready to take off. And it's sort of like tied to the ground with these gigantic metal clamps. If if you let go of that, anything's possible. Yeah. And when I say it, just keep experimenting. Because this book really for me was an experiment. I kept 
um, reframing the story, reframing the characters, reframing the concept. And if there was a point where I got stuck or there was a point where it seemed like it wasn't as much fun as it should have been, yeah. I made it more fun or funner. I made it funner. How did you How did you make it more fun, funner? Because uh, <laughs> I'm always interested in that because you're, you're a busy guy. You yeah. uh, do a lot of different things, uh, have a lot of different things going on for you uh, professionally yes. and in your, your writing life. Um, when do you get stuck? Like, how do you how do you trudge through that? Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a big part of it is that I think that we're most effective when, when we're enjoying things. Yeah. You know, I'm a restaurateur. I'm a lawyer. That's my career that I've had for quite a while. I'm getting a master's degree in psychology right now as well. And one thing I've learned from that is that human beings are very simple. It's kind of like an on-off switch. Yeah. If you don't like something, you either won't do it or you won't do it well. And if you love something, you'll do it really well. And you'll stay with it. And so, you know, there was one point maybe midway through where I was just at a total impasse with this book. And one of the things that helped me make that voice stronger was that I, I switched from third person. You know, he said, she said, the first person. I did this. I said that. And during that made his, more, his voice more direct and realistic, but it also made him a lot more hilarious. Yeah. Because it wasn't one of my, one of my best friends, um, uh, Che Yoon, who's getting a doctorate degree up north right now, um, once told me, she said, it's, it's like if you're writing in third person as an author, you're playing an instrument, like a clarinet, like Pete Fountain, you know. But if you're in first person, you're singing. Mm-hmm. There's no instrument between you and the, and the reader. And I understood that with this book in particular, it had to be direct from this person's mind and mouth to the reader. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, you're not afraid to deal explicitly with race and identity mm-hmm. in this book. Um, that's hard for a lot of people. Yeah. How was it always planned to kind of address these issues in this this particular way? Yeah, not at all. Yeah. You know, I mentioned earlier um, New Jim Crow and, and Ta-Nehisi Coates yeah. and, um, you know, there's Michael Brown, there's Trayvon Martin, there's Sandra Bland. I think that, like a lot of Americans, I was forced to pay attention. And I think if you would have caught me six or seven years ago, you know, as a black man in America, I had my, my personal experience with race and white supremacy and, and, and just, you know, being in this country. But I think at some point you have to read and talk to people and ask questions and challenge your assumptions. And I think once I started doing that, it was like um, baking a souffle in the oven. This thing went from being flat to being three-dimensional. Yeah. And you have to be unafraid of being incorrect, of being, uh, you shouldn't be afraid of being embarrassed. And I think with this book, it's a complex book, difficult topic where some bad things happen to some good people. And I know that at some point, there'll be some readers who are frustrated by it or people who think, you know, why would you do that to these, to these characters? Well, that's part of the conversation because mm-hmm. we see these things happen in real life all the time. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the demilization process is, is like this metaphor for what happens in real life all the time. So I think that um, I'm still not comfortable talking about race, but I do. Yeah. And I think that getting that knowledge base of, you know, reading up on things and, and just trying to understand things better myself even to the point where I would have said white supremacy five years ago. Yeah. Those things have helped me be a better author, a better human, a better American. And I think we should all strive for that. And I have a lot of role models who I look to, people like um, K.S.A. Lehman and Jessamyn Ward and you know, Kima Jones and, and I mean, there's so many people. So definitely. I could see that. No, um, speaking of, you know, writing things, honestly, writing them, how they kind of happen. I mean, your um, nonfiction, your essay writing career, uh, you've also been doing a lot of that recently, um, including a piece you wrote about the uh, gentrification on Ferret Street Mm -hmm. uh, and you're living nearby. And I was wondering if you could talk about that piece and kind of uh, the effect it had on you writing that and kind of delving into that history. 
Yeah, you know, it's a strange thing because I think that we humans are very uncomfortable with change. And so it's been strange for me living in the same house on the same block in the same neighborhood since 2003. And I have seen maybe the most upheaval you could imagine in this country because within a year and a half, my house is destroyed by Katrina. It's flooded and I'm out of it for seven or eight months. And uh, it's not back fully functioning until a year afterwards. Yeah. Um, before Katrina, the neighborhood was very lively. There was a school next door. It was just a typical, you know, New Orleans neighborhood. And then for about two or three years afterwards, it was so abandoned and, and, and desolate that um, there were no neighbors for the most part. I had like one or two neighbors for like a year or so. The school was destroyed, so there was no school. One of my short stories, um, The Pie Man, is kind of written around that idea of this abandoned school near my house. There were no dogs. And I was used to like seeing dogs, you know, running around, you know, knocking my garbage can over. <laughs> you know, the kids would like drop, you know, candy wrappers on the ground, all oh, those darn kids. <laughs> I, but I missed all that, that aggravation, you know? Yeah. And then... Um, Maybe five or so years afterwards, there was some development. Houses are getting repaired. They're opening up some new restaurants. And then maybe around 2011 or 12, it accelerated. And I saw Ferret go from being like a, like a moonscape, this sort of like barren area, to being, I mean, just packed with people constantly. And I think that, you know, in the writing, I think what I've tried to convey is that it's a complex thing. Because yeah. I've seen places like Dunbar's go away. They've reopened, you know, across town. It took some time for them to do that, but they're gone now. That was my neighborhood spot. We would go there and just get some red beans and rice and fried chicken, you know, once a week. Yeah. It was Antoine's. We'd go there and get some um, some pedophores or some um, some almond wedding cake or something like that. And they've been replaced by places like Hi-Hat and um, Ancora and Wayfair and, and the other bakery that's over there now. And that's all fine, but the questions I had to ask myself, which I had not been thinking about beforehand, was what does it mean to a neighborhood when all of a sudden the businesses are not designed to cater to you? And so, not off rent, but a few blocks up, there was a, you know, a dollar breakfast shop. You go in there for 99 cents, you get a sausage, a biscuit, some grits, and an egg, and go to work with a full stomach. Well, a lot of those women and men can't do that now. Yeah. Or, you know, if you want to get a cake at Antoine's, it's like 10 bucks. The new place, it can be from, you know, 30 bucks to 200 bucks, something like that. Um, you know, the people who work there, are they from the neighborhood? The people who eat there, they're from the neighborhood. Are they, like, driving, you know, a mile from a mile away to get to the place? So on the one hand, is there sort of these thoughts of what's been lost and these thoughts also of what I personally enjoy. Yeah. You know, I love a good hot dog from, from that place over there, you know? Yeah. It was complex, and I do know at some, some point uh, it's happening worldwide. I mean, I've had friends traveling in from Berlin saying it's, it's happening there right now. So we kind of can't stop it, but we can be cognizant of how it affects people and try to address those things. Yeah. And so I admire... Anybody who owns a, a business in a neighborhood where they're not from, and they say, you know what, we're going to try and make this a place that people want to come to who, who live in this neighborhood. Make yeah. it either affordable or make it something that is, is enjoyable for them as well. Yeah. Because, I mean, the bottom line is, not to be too reductionist, is that if something is enjoyable to people, again, and it's good for the people who are part of that community, it's good for all of us. But if it's not, if it's exclusive, you know, if it's like one of these tennis clubs where you can't even get past the gate, mm -hmm. Well, you know, maybe you feel good about it, but you probably shouldn't feel good about that. No, you know, just because something's like an economic boon to an area doesn't mean it's helpful to the community surrounding it. That's right. Um, you, again, tackling an issue that's really kind of thorny and hard to talk about. Um, does writing about these things prove to be like a clarifying force for you? Is it helpful? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, the first piece I wrote about gentrification in New Orleans was commissioned by Rebecca Solnit yeah. and Rebecca Snedeker. So 
that's my first real assignment as a quote-unquote like um, reporter, you know, going out and talking to people and getting things down about what's going on. Yeah, that was on uh, St. Claude, right? That was on St. Claude. Uh, the book is called uh, Unfathomable City. Say that seven times fast. <laughs> it's not very easy. <laughs> not too much. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I wrote that. And I, I worked really hard on it. But I think comparing that piece, and then there's maybe three or four other pieces that have the same topic in between that to this latest piece, is that the more you think about it, the more you talk about it, the more you, you're honest with yourself about it. Yeah. And the, the less you try and protect yourself and look cool, the better the work is. And so last night I interviewed uh, Kiersey Lemon, who has a great book out called Heavy. And he is known for his, his ability to go really deep, really fast, and to be totally honest and to be unafraid to show who he really is in the work. And so I think those experiences has helped me as a writer create work that has that sort of heft and force. Yeah. And it's surprising because I'll, you know, I'll, hear, I'll go back and read things like months after it's been published and kind of go, did I write that? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, kind of shocked a little bit. But I do think that if you're going to write anything at all, it has to have a level of truth to it where you learn something in the process of it. Yeah. So the piece itself is not a lesson necessarily, but you are changed by it. If you're changed by it, maybe it could change somebody else too. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you and I have had great discussions about um, not just writing, but but movies and film. Yes. Uh, you are a big fan of watching. Your, your watching habits, like mine, have grown to try and encompass new movies and, and classics that, mm -hmm. that everyone talks about. Um, how has watching film and thinking about story through the lens, uh, the visual lens, helped you in your own writing? Are there any techniques that you've come to like, be like, oh, that'd be really cool to incorporate in a book? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, movies are everything. And I'll, I'll just say that um, I've always loved film, but I didn't really become very intentional about what I watched until a few years ago. So my dad passed in 2014, and one of the things that I think he taught me is that when life is hard, Give yourself a gift. And my gift to myself that year was to start watching foreign films and classic movies from like pre-1960. And what I noticed is that, you know how like, like if you um, see something that was baked in the oven, like a cake or whatever like that, and you're, you eat like the middle part, it tastes pretty good, but like eat the edges, it tastes like twice as good. Mm -hmm. So like burnt edges pieces. <laughs> movies are like that for stories. You know, a good novel is a great novel or a great novel is, is a wonderful novel. But a movie is like a reduction of that. It's like the syrup almost. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's something by somebody like Jordan Peele or, you know, Fellini or, you know, whoever you want to name, movies have to be very efficient. If they're any good, they can tell that story in an hour and a half. Yeah. Whereas a novel is going to tell you a story like in nine hours. And so I think that I have learned a lot about telling stories that are very effective, very quick, um, that can touch the reader very, very deeply and, um, and, even without knowing it, even though I had studied these things in the past, the idea of like the, the three-act structure or the five-act structure, mm -hmm. the idea of rising and falling action, the idea of um, dialogue that has um, opposition. So if I say, open that door, David, and you go, no, that's a lot more exciting to me saying open the door and you go ahead and open the door. Yeah. <laughs> so those sort of little things sort of seep into your conscience as a writer. If you're paying attention, I mean, now I even I like watching bad movies, you know, bad TV shows, because I can see where those creators have kind of gone off the rails. But I've, and I've also come to understand that quote-unquote bad shows and movies and, and whatever, there are good things within those things. Yeah. And so I, I learned lessons from flawed films. I mean, I was talking earlier before we started about Return to Oz, this classic cult Halloween movie I haven't seen since I was like eight years old or so. And that movie, the plot is a little bit disordered, the characterization is a little bit weak, but it is like a, a waking dream. Mm -hmm. And the power of that 
it's his own thing that I respect as a creative person. Yeah, I get that. I, I love those types of things. I saw a documentary last night, which I didn't think was technically good. There are a lot of sound problems, a lot of bad editing, but uh, the heart of it was in the right place. And that's all that mattered, you know, mm -hmm. and that that was just enough to be like rise above and be like, this is totally worth watching. I would recommend this highly. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, some some fun questions for you as, as we're kind of getting towards the end here. Um, what's your favorite part of a story, not not in writing it, but in experiencing it. Is there any oh, yeah. portion of a story that you just love having every single time you experience it? Oh yeah, I mean that's really easy for me. I love it when any character, who particularly a character who seems a little prickly or difficult or obtuse, when they show what they care about. Yeah. And so where that character has kind of been argumentative towards everybody in the story, but then you see that they love their mother, or that character has been like a loner and they sort of come back to save the day at the last moment, that sort of thing. Those moments of people showing that they care about others, to me, is the most important thing in, in storytelling. I think that redemption and um, and love are two are two traits that are just so important. And I try to put that in my work every time I write a story. And yeah. I think that my my main character, my novel, he has a lot of that within him, where he has some issues, but his his core is that he loves his family. Yeah. Um, the novel, a lot of people are going to call the, the word satire is going to be coming yes. out a lot with it. Yeah. Are you, are you okay with that? Do you, do you like that, that term or <laughs> how would you describe that term? Well, I think what, what I've noticed is that most satirists don't like it, Yeah. which is funny to me. So like I know, so, so Paul Beatty who won the, um, what's it, the man booker or, or yeah, I think he won that a few years ago, he was being interviewed and he said, I didn't think it was satire. I thought it was just me telling a realistic story. Yeah. I think that what I, what I prefer to say is what Nabokov said. He said that he's not a satirist, he's a parodyist. He makes parodies. And what he meant is, he said that satire is a lesson, parody is a game. So in satire, it's like saying, look at how crazy the world is. Ha, 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 <laughs> laugh along with me with this thing. Yeah. Parody is designed to make you think you're seeing one thing, but something else is going on. It's about sleight of hand. Okay. And so I think that if I'm doing my job writing this book, I've done that. So I'm fine with being called a satirist. But I do think also that satirists are also seen as being somewhat surface level. Like, don't love these characters too much. Don't get too invested in it. It's not really serious. This, this isn't important. And I see these people as people who really exist in an alternate reality. Yeah. Like, they really are living somewhere else, you know, outside of our, our view. So call it what you want. I think it's a good story. I think people will enjoy it. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, what is there an aspect about writing that you just have never liked? <laughs> um... That's a funny question. I think earlier there were things that it, it was most of writing I didn't like. It was just there were too many things that I didn't understand about writing. Yeah. I think nowadays, I wouldn't say I don't like it, but the blank page is the scariest thing that a writer confronts. I think if you turn your laptop on or you got a piece of paper and there's nothing on it, you don't know where you're going. But I have found that it's a lot like having the power to fly mm -hmm. and you're on top of a skyscraper and you jump off that skyscraper. You have to trust as an artist that you're going to start flying eventually before you hit the ground. Yeah. And what I found is that most of the time I do fly before I hit the ground. So it's scary and it's uncomfortable. But if, if I believe, like Tinkerbell, mm -hmm. you know, clap your hands. <laughs> um, and people have been believing in me lately. Um, I fly. So that fear is, uh, is helpful to get started. But it goes away very quickly. I can see that. Yeah. That support's been nice, right? I, I know a lot of people in town have been super supportive. It's always nice to have a, a New Orleans um, figure coming out with something. Yeah, it's been wonderful. I mean, people have been just amazing to me. Just yeah. so, so many people just give me, like, advice or, like, just, you know, pats on the back or whatever like that. I mean, who could ask for anything more, you know? Yeah. Um, when you look at that blank page, that, that, that Word document with just, like, the, the blinking cursor right mm -hmm. there, um, 
how far along do you have to get before you're, you start feeling a groove? <laughs> it's probably easy to talk about short stories where I'll write a paragraph or a page. Yeah. And I'll just keep writing that over and over again, starting from scratch, erasing it, going back and starting from the very first line until the voice sounds honest to that character. With the novel, it took a little bit longer. Yeah. Like maybe as long as a year to get this person's voice down. This is my first published novel, so that, that's my main experience. But again, you know, I think that gumption is a big part of being an artist. Mm-hmm. You have to be comfortable with the idea that you might possibly fail. And yeah. if you can play without a net, you can make some really amazing things happen. Yeah. Um, a novel is a long-term project. It's a hard yes. project. It's you're wrestling with this thing that has many heads at all times. Um, if you were to have not finished this and were about to start it again today, knowing what you know now, uh, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I think if I was starting over today, I would have said spend more time figuring out what makes this man tick. Yeah. Because I think a big part of the, the sort of lost year or two when I started was just not knowing what he was about, what he really cared about. And I think that in writing, from a technical standpoint as a writer, you should write somebody who is obsessed with something. Because if you can do that and follow that path, it's like they're like a, it's like you're on a horse-drawn carriage. They're going to pull you where, where you have to go automatically. Yeah. yeah. It makes it so much easier. Okay. So much easier. I think that that's a good answer. Yeah. Um, you know, wrapping up, uh, what are some events that you have coming up both in the city and, you know, nationwide as the book starts, you know, gearing up? Yeah, there's a few things going on. So I mentioned Dogfish earlier. That's going to be next. Uh, that's going to be tonight, actually, <laughs> at 7 p.m. <laughs> also, I should mention that I'm going to be in Brooklyn at a place called Pioneer Works okay. with um, renowned poet Fatima Oscar, as well as the um, director, the artistic director at the New York Met, um, her name is Kimberly Drew. She's the, the moderator. This is going to be a great conversation on October 30th. So if you are in the New York area, stop over. You will not be dis- disappointed at all. It's going to be fantastic. And I have um, a tour coming up in, in uh, starting in January. It's going to be a few places. I'm going to. So it's still being put together. But I know I'm going to Kentucky, uh, Boston, I think uh, Baltimore, Arkansas, all around town other places. So you can find me because I'm pretty ubiquitous now. I'm okay. like uh, Chinese rice. Awesome. Fried rice is great. <laughs> I, I, love, I, I love fried rice. Of course, as you should. Yeah. Um, are you doing a big release uh, here? Yeah, the release is going to be on the uh, January 29th. Okay. Um, we are still putting together details for that, but just like go on my Facebook page or follow my Twitter feed and you'll see the details of that when it comes up. Okay, fantastic, Maurice. Um, finally, uh, what are you reading right now and what do you think is going to happen in Steven Universe Season 6? <laughs> All right, so because I tend to watch it on Hulu, I haven't seen season five yet. I haven't seen yet. season five, okay. So I, I don't know. It's going to be great whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. I just know that for a fact. Um, I just finished rereading Handmaid's Tale for a project I'm doing with some friends. And I'm going to start reading pretty soon So two books. One is Jordan Peterson's uh, 12 Roots for Living. Okay. And the other book is, um, there's a few things actually. Uh, Jamel Brinkley has a book out that's nominated for National Book Award. I've actually read a good bit of it already, but I want to go back from the beginning and read it through again because... He's just fantastic. Yeah. So check it out. It's called Lucky Man. Okay. And then the last thing I'm reading right now is a book by um, Rebecca Solnit. Yeah. Which I had actually read half of, but I'm going back. I want to get the thing from, from the start. So yeah. that's it right now. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds great, Maurice. Yep. Um, well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I really appreciate you coming on. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. That was author and novelist Maurice Carlos Ruffin. And his new book will be released in 2019 under the name We Cast Shadow. In fact, there's actually a contest going on at goodreads.com to possibly win a copy of the book. And you can find more information about that on goodreads.com. That contest goes on until October 30th. And that's our show. 
You've been listening to the Writers Forum on WRBA 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. All of our programs after they air can be found online on WRBH's SoundCloud page, which is at www.soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.